Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Environmental Podcast. Yeah, this is our podcast where we investigate different aspects of sustainability and we come in at you every week. <laughs> That's true. And we are back again with part two of uh, going over the book Black Food Matters by Ashante Reese and Hannah Garth. And it's my turn now. Yeah. Last week, Ob shared. Yeah, I talked about the first half of the book and how important I think we both feel this book is really important um, to the work. And yeah, I am super excited to hear about your thoughts on this other second half. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we decided to split this one up because it's sort of, it's a series of smaller pieces of work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it's kind of broken up into a bunch of different subtopics all about Black food and the history Mm -hmm. of Black food. And um, yeah, so if that's interesting to you, then you can check this out we'll go watch part one first or subscribe to our channel like what we're doing cool yeah yeah because the algorithm wants to know that you want content about sustainability yes and um and this is an important aspect of it right this this the social piece and and racial justice um and it's yeah, very important part of it is kind of understanding how racism permeates throughout pretty much every part of life. Yeah. Yeah. So it it wasn't, yeah. um, I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) So um, the parts that I, so I sort of, I've read the second half of this book and a lot of it is about cultural appropriation of sort of traditional food. Okay. Traditional foods from people of color. And that was sort of the biggest overall theme was just how kind of rampant cultural appropriation is when it comes to food um, and, and, and especially just in, in the kind of more traditional restaurant industry, um, which is very white um, and still has a lot of weird kind of hierarchy and power structures in, in it with, in terms of kind of head chefs and, and, and then, you know, prep cooks and dishwashers and stuff. Um, so, it's sort of an, yeah, a sort of an interesting kind of holdover from, rather, I guess it's, it's sort of an interesting microcosm of, of, of racial injustices that happen specifically in how white people co-opt kind of these ideas, call them their own, or say that they're inventing something new and it's like this new hip restaurant and you're like, wait, <laughs> this isn't new. This is, you know, yeah, it's, we've all seen it, right? We've all probably likely been to some sort of like a hip 
like infusion restaurant that does some sort of like you know latin or or like afro-caribbean or barbecue food um and they just kind of do it in a maybe a slightly different way um or it's some kind of like hybrid um mm-hmm. but those ideas aren't from the actual chef's culture they're kind of taken from other lower ranked chefs which is really interesting um can you elaborate on why it's problematic yeah well yeah so so essentially i mean so much of people's culture starts and centers around food Mm -hmm. and when when a white person uses their privilege to take the concepts of a different culture and calls it new there, mm-hmm. there, there's a, con- a concrete example, which I'll get to, because that's actually kind of at the end of the book, um, where oddly enough, <laughs> um, these chefs in Miami called this kind of Afro-Caribbean kind of c- Cuban food, they called it new world. Food. Okay. So it's problematic when it's not like, this is a traditional African dish or like an, or yeah, it's kind of simultaneously like sterilizing the the history of that particular food because it's mm-hmm. not recognizing the cultural significance of where that food, okay. food came from and the people that have been <laughs> making that food for so long. And in fact, the people who have been making that food for so long, you know, would never have been able to run their own restaurant mm-hmm. creating that traditional food. And, and I guess I'll start with sort of with barbecue because I think that's a really interesting example. So like if it, if a, like it's really, it's just, it's just sort of an interesting concept. Like current barbecue culture in America almost entirely overlooks the connection and the importance of this barbecue practice from African-American culture and history. And, and it tends to, which I, th- I think we touched on a little bit last time, last, last episode, where if a black person was to, you know, talk about barbecue or talk about that being their favorite food, it's often looked at as unhealthy mm-hmm. or written off as just like, not not some sort of like culinary new thing but if some white person was to like open up a barbecue spot in like a hip part of town because they have access to investors and have access to real estate it would it wouldn't have that negative connotation Mm -hmm. and so the problem is just that, 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 that both of those exist, that, that both of those things can, are true. That like 
if right. someone with African descent wanted to open up an African restaurant, it wouldn't be thought of as new and it wouldn't be, it, it just kind of often gets discounted uh, as, as yeah. a, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's just essentially, it's all rooted in, in just this indirect kind of white supremacist attitude in a way. Yeah. Um, where white chefs are just highly favored, like by, it just, by American society. And it's, it's a strange thing. Like they're, they're really, I think that one example was like, there haven't been a whole lot of people of color that have won like Michelin stars in the wow. like high-end food, like restaurant uh, awards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Is that like a ratio or? It didn't give an exact ratio at all, um, but that was just an example that was given. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm curious because about like, if that's because Black folks have less access to spaces where Michelin star people eat food. So that's like, there's less we know that there's like less black entrepreneurs in, in the chef space, in the food space, mm -hmm. but, or if it's because out of the people that are black folks in the food space, comparatively with white folks in the food space, they get a Michelin star at a lower rate is sort of where my mind goes with that. But yeah. It's a good question. Oh. I don't have that information. I, I probably would imagine that it is both, but it's just sort of the, um, th they really spent these these um, chapters really highlighting how in restaurant culture um, we commodify otherism that that's mm -hmm. like the hot new thing when it's like it spices up white culture to be able to say like oh I went to like an Asian fusion restaurant and it's not weird if a restaurant has both Thai food and and sushi and because to white people that's just like oh, I'm going to the Asian restaurant but like if you actually think about that like those are two completely different cultures yeah. completely different styles of food and right. two completely different histories that were essentially and potentially un you know unknowingly erasing mm -hmm. and Yeah, so it did a really interesting job at kind of giving a few examples of that. Uh, the first, of course, being in barbecue culture. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there was also an interesting section about, you know, the, the need for community gardens and for that that and, and that community gardens can in and of itself be an act of resistance which is also something that we kind of talked about last week yeah um, indeed. yeah and but that these the it's almost a direct response to the to the lack of access right so it's like in these communities of color there were um 
smaller local markets for a long time. There were also those like, street vendors and people who would just, and, and just farmers who would just work kind of on trade. And yeah. then grocery stores came in and right. grocery stores kind of took over all of that and put pretty essentially everybody else out of business. Mm-hmm. But because these grocery stores are nationwide, they don't feel connected to the community whatsoever. And right. in times where there's economic downturn, they're going to make a business decision and they have and do make business decisions to just up and leave those areas. Right. And so, yeah, once again, communities of color are sort of left to having to do it on their own. Yeah. And And so there was this kind of rise in thinking of farming as an act of resistance. Um, But um, they brought up this really interesting lawsuit, this case of um, in which the USDA which is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, was sued for racial discrimination in 1999. Whoa. Yeah, so this was not that long ago. (laughs) This was not that long ago at all that there was still overt systemic racism in parts of the federal government. And this lawsuit essentially was saying that because the USDA is in charge of sort of allocating aid and funds to farmers Um, because we sort of we subsidize um, as a country our farmers and give Mm -hmm. yeah kind of allocate resources in some some way I don't know all of the details Um, but the USDA knew that black farmers were not being provided with aid in the same way that white farmers were. Oh, like clear and overt. And so that was the basis of the lawsuit and it, and they won, but the farmers essentially received $65,000 each in settlements. But I don't think that that really Which is a lot. It's a lot for a farm, but like, did it solve the problem? <sighs> like, has, like, yeah, what changed? Did it, did what it change? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They mentioned that, you know, that like not too long after Obama had a speech and he addressed Black farmers. Um, and they created an act that would specifically kind of help to target racial injustice in the in farming. Mm-hmm. But it it did no, I, I think that it did not fully address like kind of the root of why that was able to happen in the first place. And and right. the USDA is it, it there's it's just sort of there a quote is racism permeated the USDA 
Um, it was, yeah. it was in everything. Um, and it, it, yeah. And I, yeah, essentially they, there were just some, some pretty bad guys that were at the head of the USDA during this time, um, where not only were they kind of really pushing these just racial injustices, but they were also um, like highly promoting large scale farming operations and in effect, essentially killing small farms wow. at the same time. So these were the yeah. same people that were doing this around this time. And yeah. hungry communities aren't an accident. Right. Like, like we talked about last time. Right. Yeah. And it's crazy to see that like that almost, I mean, I'm not going to say that that single-handedly came down to like this, his name was, his, his last name was Butts, Mr. Butts, um, was the head of the USDA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, at the time, it's like, or I think early 2000s. So it's just not a coincidence that these things were happening around the same time. It's really, you know, and it's just sort of an interesting fact to know about. Um, but I don't think to it, that it, you know, did a whole lot to actually address issues. Um, I think that there were also additional class action lawsuits against the USDA, like, even more recently than that. Um, the one that was mentioned in the book is called Pigford, Pigford versus Glickman. Um, but it does look like there were more recent lawsuits up until 2004, um, potentially 2009, <clears throat> of again, racially discriminatory practices throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. In the USDA? In the USDA, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like, I, I think that that's good information because, um, especially to share, like we'll share a little bit more about that on the Living Brand Directory, which you guys should follow, um, <laughs> because our justice system works a lot on, uh, I just had the word and I've lost it, on, um, I lost the word, but on choosing, making decisions based on prior decisions, precedents. Mm. Justice makes a lot of decisions based on precedents. Yeah. And when things like the USDA, like it's the USDA, but it's still part of the federal government. So that sets a precedent for the, the federal government being sued for overt racism, which is something you can use as a precedent in, a, in another case, if and when, because we're going to see that coming up, you know, quite a bit more, that's, that is used, that could very well be cited as a precedent for like, this is possible, here's yeah. what happened, and here's, you know. Right, because it, absolutely, that it, there is no way that it was just this agency that was, you know, continuing to kind of just allow these things to happen. And yeah, it is, it's uh, not new. And 
yeah I, but I think it was it's it's just not it's not something that you really you actively like hear about that's not, I've never I, I mean perhaps that is was bigger news back then we we were quite young yeah. in the early 2000s so that makes sense that we wouldn't really be privy to that but um yeah I at no point did I ever learn that the USDA was was sued for racial discrimination that that's lost yeah um and and lost yeah there were additional lawsuits that I think didn't quite go through but yeah there were definitely um there it was they settled you know essentially yeah um but that's interesting it is and it's, you know, I think then, so it was it, the way that the book was structured, it was sort of, it, it started with the, the barbecue piece and talking about cultural appropriation. And then it moved into, you know, here's why black farmers kind of started being the answer to this, to their, to this problem that they were facing. Um, but then it sort of ended in, in talking about a different example of cultural appropriation in restaurants. Um, so the way, yeah, so, so I thought that that structure was a little interesting. Um, but it, it essentially it's just citing more examples in history of these same systems happening, mm-hmm. right? And, and it just continues to highlight these holdovers of of white supremacy and these kind of capitalist driven um, kind of colonial based ideologies where if if it's something new to us us being the white person we can take it and it's just new and we can take it and sell it Mm -hmm. and I mean, that's like, that's the, yeah, that happens every day in every, everything, everything about black culture gets co-opted and commodified by white culture eventually. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was just sort of a, um, the, the the example that they gave was was again about um, Cubans and Cubans in Miami and how in the I believe 70s like there the government was allowing Cubans to seek to come into the states and so they were giving, aid um and so that allowed for a large population of cubans to to kind of settle in miami Mm -hmm. um but the problem was that the the group of cubans that were more able to quote unquote like assimilate and to uh kind of create that strong culture were the lighter complex complected individuals and the more Afro-Caribbeans were left out. They, that 
it just kind of never quite trickled down to the darker complected uh, Cubans. Even from the same culture, even from the yes. same place. Yeah, and that, that is often the an unfortunate sort of side effect of white supremacy is that it kind of, it creates these divides amongst cultures of people of color as well, where, mm -hmm. where it creates this divide of dark skin and light skin and, and creates a hierarchy. That's a, a shitty truth, but it, but it is. Yeah. Um, and so they, they really kind of just pointed out how you know, there were these, there was this group of chefs in Miami that they called themselves the mango gang. Almost, all, almost all of them were white. Um, but they kind of quote unquote created this cuisine called new world cuisine, cuisine, which was essentially like a combination of Afro-Caribbean, Cuban, South American dishes which to white folks is like, whoa, I've never had these flavor combinations. Like what's a plantain, you know, like. That sounds hella yummy. I but... mean, absolutely. And it was incredibly popular. It was incredibly popular. And so, but the, but the restaurants were not owned by these, by the people of that culture. It was like the heads of the restaurants were white, white head chef having their prep cooks and dinner cooks creating their own cultural dishes and they they were the ones with the ideas right of the mm -hmm. of the, the the flavor combinations and the new you know new dishes but they would not get any of that credit yeah and if they wanted to create their own restaurant it would never see the same kind of commercial success as calling something new world cuisine and that, you know, and, and that being in this like kind of more upscale dining environment and that, that, that wouldn't happen in the same way if mm -hmm. someone from that culture was just starting their own restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one way to escape this, this was for some of those folks to open up food trucks. So that has really helped, I think, in, in, in terms of giving folks the opportunity to work for themselves and to not be sort of stuck in that trap of, of um, being the creative driver, but none, getting none of the recognition uh -huh. in, in creating those dishes for the restaurants. Um, yeah, it, it was sort of a, the, this example, it was a really interesting example of just sort of how seemingly the only way to kind of legitimize a culture's food to Americans was if it was marketed by white people. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, 
you know, it was just, yeah, just, and they used a lot of parallels to Columbus, which I thought was a really, really beautiful example of just, you know, of <laughs> calling it new world cuisine, um, acting like the, you know, their discovery of this historical food was some sort of new thing at all. And then mm -hmm. benefited from the knowledge and the labor of the folks from that culture. Um, without giving any thing back, right? Because they were yeah. still there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, I have a hard time with, this is a, again, another gray area. And I think we can, there's always is one, there's always a gray area. Some folks are just passionate about their food, you know, passionate about food they love. Um, it's the aspect of, not calling it traditional, not sharing the culture because mm -hmm. it's a whitewashed restaurant. It's not like restaurant. It's a, <laughs> a whitewashed restaurant. <laughs> it's not going to be like a Cuban restaurant. It's not going to be, you know, Cuban themed with the music and everything. It might be. Or I mean, I, guess I don't it know. Could be. Yeah. But it, it won't be. Cubans yeah, that, wouldn't eat there. White people eat there. Right. It doesn't give back to the Cuban community. No. That's for me, that's where it crosses that line because you can meet somebody that just is so, regardless of their skin color, is so in love with a food or in love with a an art piece or, you know, that they that they hold that standard that they, you know, that they hold, hold it up as, you know, put it on a pillar and make it beautiful make it delicious, market it beautifully. But when it comes to credit and mm -hmm. culture, that's where, for me, where that matters, where it's like, yeah, give credit where credit's due. Sure. No, exactly. I think that's the difference between like cultural appreciation and, and learning from a culture and, and cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. which is just straight up stealing. Stealing is not okay. Recognition. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's where I see the line. I act, I mean, I would love to see hear other people's perspective of sort of where that line right. should be. Yeah. I I I have a hard time with cultural appropriation. And you and I have talked about this like mm -hmm. off camera quite a bit because it is difficult to, to know where that line is. Like, absolutely. Yeah. I love aspects of black culture, but sometimes I feel like I can't partake in them because I don't, because my skin is so white, but I mm -hmm. don't want to be a cultural appropriated. I, I, I love this culture. I would never be like, this is, this is something new I've found, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah it's it's tough yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a huge gray area um yeah. right because yeah to some extent there is absolute beauty in the fusion of cultural ideas and sharing information and how else can we grow as societies and cultures than by learning right. from each other 
otherwise we're separate and we stay separate is the goal to stay separate no exactly so how we need this cross cross cross-cultural pollination in this way yes but but why doesn't it but it's never the other way around no and that's the issue i think it or it's it just it's like part of the issue it's just like mm-hmm. if you love something love it wholly not as like this element that you steal love it as like part of a tradition part of a culture part of something and right. prop up the whole culture and if some and if what you love is also suffering like hold that offer your love to the suffering don't just take the take it and walk take what you love and walk away that's not right I mean yeah I think that that's the hard part for for folks because that's that actually requires work and thought in in um in honoring history and traditions and and it's more comfortable for white people to simulate the experience of um, of that history and the origins of of something than it is for them to actually honor and retain the original culture like I think and and you know and this is like like there's something there's what's called uh cultural heritage tourism where let's like probably an interesting example is probably like some of the like um plantation houses in the south there they give tours you know um I imagine that the things that they teach in those tours is a very glossed over version of the true events. And, and it's likely told through the eyes of the white person. Um, and if there is potentially some aspect of that is t- told through the perspective of the enslaved people in that area, it's probably softened. Where it's made for it to be more comfortable for white people to learn about. Um, Right. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know where there's, where I was going with that, I suppose, but like that's um that's the reality that we're sort of living in though. Is that like right. e- yeah, everything is centered around uh what what's the concept white fragility? Yeah, the white right? the like eggshells. So we our feelings aren't hurt by the bullshit that we did in the past, you know. Right. Right. We have to, we have to, 
examine that. You know, we have to look at it. Right. And but at, at no, like, and I, th I think that what's, what I'd like to see is that like, like, what, yeah, why don't these restaurants that are so clearly utilizing a historical, a food of historical significance to a particular culture, why is it, why is that not recognized at all? Why, right. like, why? Um, why would you put that, isn't that super cool? Doesn't that make it more special? And but but that but that story needs to be told by someone of that culture. Yeah. And perhaps that's the issue is that the the owners of these places don't necessarily want to give a seat at the table to someone of that culture. They just want to say, "Oh, well I learned about barbecue. I've been barbecuing my whole life." It's an American tradition. It's like, okay, well, you're not wrong, but you're way yes. glazing over. Right. There's a whole history. Right. Yeah, it's a tough, it shouldn't be that tough, but it is, and it's politicized, and it's, yeah, uh, yeah. In, in this, this part of the book, <clears throat> pardon, they kind of didn't say that there was any solutions, that they really were just kind of addressing these injustices. Hold on. <clears throat> Tickle in my throat. Um, and that really, yeah, I think that the, the end was just sort of like, you just need to ask yourself why and like ask mm -hmm. questions and recognize when this is happening. Yeah. It definitely made me Google the owners of the two barbecue places that I most frequent in my town. One of which is a white man and one of which is a person of color. And so I'm probably gonna choose the mm -hmm. person of color's restaurant moving forward. As, yeah. an, as an individual, I can make that purchasing decision based on this information that, you know, it just kind of opened my eyes to. Yeah. But. I think that's cool. And I think that's, I mean, that's what we need to do, right? Is like, when you make a choice, look at the value and behind your purchasing choices. And when you're, as, in, as it relates to like the restaurants you go to and um, especially if you're frequenting them, if they're in your hometown, you know, we have this in, it's not the same because the, because African culture in the Netherlands is quite a bit different than, yeah. than black culture in America, but there's a Greek restaurant here and there are two Greek restaurants in my town. And we did, we also did that. We looked it up, you know, we go to the Greek restaurant that the Greek people own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's and we go to yeah. the Italian restaurant that the Italian guy owns like we try really hard to make those choices because it matters the food is also better <laughs> like just in general it there's more mm -hmm. love in it when it's 
a connection to someone's culture. I think. I think so. And, 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 and then, and yeah, cause I mean, every decision that we make when we're, when we're buying something has the power to essentially say, I support this or I don't support this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I think that that is interesting research to do to see like, yeah, who owns these restaurants? Who are, you know, is this, mm-hmm. are these people that are just clearly appropriating culture that are, or, or these yeah. people that are, have, you know, perhaps immigrated to this country or your, you know, the Netherlands or the States and are running yeah. a, a family owned restaurant. Like that's incredible. Like we need to right. be more conscious of supporting these businesses that are the livelihood of generations of historically marginalized people. Yep. And that's kind of the gist of of this portion of the book. Okay. I like that. I like that as an end of just being aware and conscious of who we're buying our food from Mm -hmm. and how they're treating the traditions that they come from. Yep. Yeah. History and food matters and it, um, it's something, yeah, that we should sort of be aware of. Um, yeah. So I think that this book was really awesome though. Um, I, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it if, if you're interested in learning about the history of, of like, yeah essentially black foods or, or, or food, the sort of intersection of food and culture and history and race. Yeah. 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 Highly recommended. And I'm glad we split this up into two different, because it feels like there's two, two different ways to look at this book as well. So yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah, it goes over a, a bunch of just smaller individual topics, but yeah, I think that um, it was interesting to kind of see that, yeah, the second half definitely more so focused on a lot on, on giving those examples of appropriation, which was interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, that is Black Food Matters. If you mm-hmm. like this content and you want to follow us on the journey, please subscribe. Yeah, we would really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, I think we will come to you next time with a bit of a transition episode. And um, just like a quick overview. Yeah. This topic is never going to feel over because it's something. Yeah, it's I think none of them really do. And that's that's okay. But um, yeah, food is a, is a big one because it's something that's a kind of a constant. <laughs> yeah, it's the basis of everything we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. everything we need. So it is a really big topic. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure where we'll, where we'll transition to, but we will figure it out. And so stay tuned. 
for what we're going to research um, and dive deeply into next time. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. Watching. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.